Hey, this is Jason. And before we get started, I just want to thank you guys for listening to this podcast. It is hands down the coolest thing I've ever done and one of the things I'm most proud of. It would be really helpful if you could go on iTunes and rate and review the podcast. There's nothing that helps us more than this. We're really trying to get and build an audience, and we need your help. So if you could take a little time, go onto iTunes, go into SoundCloud, go wherever you listen to podcasts, and rate this, and review it, and tweet about it, and put it on Facebook. We need help spreading the word. I mean, this thing is great, and we're putting so much time and energy into it. We just want people to hear it. I'm not asking you for money. I'm not asking you to do anything other than give me a little bit of your time and show a little love for something that I know you're enjoying. So many of you guys have said such amazing things to me about this thing. I want you to know how much I appreciate it, and I really want to ask you for your help. Please help us spread the word. Go on to iTunes, rate, review the podcast. And if you want to support us financially, just use our Amazon link, and it doesn't cost you a thing. Just go onto our website. We have a page that says Amazon. There's a link you can click on and just shop there. All you do is click on that link. It takes you straight to Amazon and everything else is normal from there except they give us a little percentage of whatever you buy. It helps us a lot and it helps us pay for the podcast, which is actually kind of expensive. So I just wanted to thank you. I wanted to say this before we get started. And I appreciate your help, and I appreciate you guys listening, and more than anything, I appreciate everything you've said to me about how much you enjoy it. All right, let's get going. Hi there, welcome, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Jason Shoulder, and this is Learning to Fail. Artists are complicated. I know a lot of complicated artists. My guest today is David Furman. David was by far the most influential professor I ever had. We didn't even meet until halfway through my senior year. He's a ceramicist and not the kind who works in a dental lab. David makes incredibly detailed trompe sculptures out of clay. They're mind-blowingly crafted and infinitely creative. As a painter, I assumed he'd have nothing to teach me. Needless to say, I had a lot to learn. So, how do you like learning to fail? Have you learned to like failing, or do you fail to like learning? Whatever the case, thank you for listening. Please keep tuning in weekly and help us to reach more people by telling them. I love reading reviews on iTunes. If you haven't already done so, please take a moment to rate our podcast and write a review of your own. It's free, but it's invaluable. Make sure you check out our website, ltfpod.com, and visit our Amazon page every time you buy anything online. By clicking on our link before you shop, you can support the podcast without spending a nickel of your own money. You can also drop a dime on our donation page. Every little bit helps. As always, the most important thing you can do is simply to listen to the podcast and inspire others to do the same. We encourage everyone to try learning to fail, with or without adult supervision. And now let's get to my conversation with David Furman. 
I shudder to think what my senior art exhibit would have been like if not for David. Not to mention my understanding of art in general. I truly miss painting, and I really miss David. It was the purest kind of joy spending time with him making this podcast. If hearing this gives you a fraction of the pleasure I got from recording it, you're probably having a pretty good day. It's really nice to see you, though. It's, thank you. It's good to yeah. see you, too. Man, I can't even realize. I mean, I'm trying to figure out how long it's been. Five years. What was the last time? Like, what was our last excuse for getting together? We had sushi. I think I saw your didn't we studio. Have su- didn't we have sushi at Tokyo Kitchen? Yeah, I think so. And you were working on the toolboxes. That must have been several years ago, at least. Yeah, I mean, when were you making the toolboxes? Several years ago. <laughs> Several is not a very vague number, but... 2014, I think 13. you had just retired from um, Pitzer. Wow, that's 2007. I wasn't making the toolboxes then. Okay, so then I saw you after that, because I saw the toolboxes, so... Well, Tokyo Kitchen no longer has a sushi bar, so that is how they mark that time, you know... Um, it's what? all tepa, it's all restaurant, it's all tepan restaurant, you know, kind of Benihana, Klangam of the Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they don't serve sushi anymore? Or? Nope. No sushi bar. That's because the people who live out here, aside from you, aren't sophisticated enough to appreciate I'm, sushi. I don't know if that's it, but it changed ownership. The restaurant did. Yeah. And uh, they took it out. That's crazy. That's the first place I ever had sushi in my entire life. Yeah. And it was a great place. It became the, uh, what is it, the... The benchmark for comparing and evaluating sushi for me. Really? Yeah. Well, you must have found better sushi than the Inland Empire. I mean, have you been to Matsuhisa or any of those really crazy places? I used to go to um, uh, Tokyo Kaiken in Little Tokyo off of Alameda. When you go to the museum and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would go there before the museum was there. but. um, Have you been to Japan? Not yet. Oh, sushi there is a different animal. You know what it is? The soy sauce there is a different animal. Like, it's super salty, and I found that out the hard way because I was just, you know, dipping the rice in the soy sauce like we do here. And I went home. I woke up in the middle of the night with a wicked headache. It was my first night. And and then my host there said, well, you were using a little too much soy sauce. We just dipped the fish, like just a, a, a quick dab. Yeah. And uh, and so anyway, that's how I learned my lesson. But I was I was dehydrated for days from eating too much soy sauce on my first night. Yeah. Now they have lowered sodium. Uh, soy yeah, sauce they do. But even stuff, that, but... like, I mean, just there, it's just a totally different animal. But the food is the sushi's so good there. Plus, I mean, it helps that it's been nuclear treated with you know nuclear waste and fukushima yeah fukushima yeah from the meltdown yeah um korea i've been to but not when were you in i was in korea a couple years ago uh let's see 2003 and 2005 were you there with your art i was there because of my art i had won some awards in uh a couple of korean biennales What's a Biennale? That's every other year they have a oh, biannual. Ex- okay. exposition, exposition, or, you know. And one time I got uh, some special award, and then in 2005 I won uh, a silver uh, medal or something like that. Do you Always, remember which piece for what? Um, it was one of the uh, uh, figurative pieces with the mannequins on a right. couch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I remember you showing me those two. I, I came 
one of my visits to you was when you were working on that series. That may have been when I bought the flashlight piece from you. It may have been that visit. Because that was probably pretty close to... I bought that... Yeah, I bought that when I moved here. 2004, I think, was when I bought the flashlight. I bought it when I How sold... How much? I mean, you you gave me a great deal, but are you sure you want that public? <laughs> <laughs> I should have given it to you as the deal. I'll give you a refund. No, I don't want a <laughs> refund. You just fixed it for me for free after all those years. I consider that more than... It fell off the shelf, huh? No, my fucking housekeeper picked it up by the flashlight. Oh, God. Broke it off, you know? Well, I hope it's there when you get home. Oh, and I'm sure I, it is. And I hope the uh, restoration will be to your liking. It wasn't to mine. But the problem is, is it couldn't be reglazed and refired. Right. So I had to do it with uh, epoxies and stuff. And I'm just happy to be able to have it on display and not wrapped in paper in my garage. Yeah, and the uh, flashlight is... Uh, uh, a, a different one. It's new. Yeah, so that's there's, what you said. Yeah. So there's no chips or anything like that. On well, it, so. again, you know, it's whatever it is, it's an improvement over the life that it's had. Yeah. It's just such a cool piece. I was trying it's, to describe it's actually, it to someone Yeah, today. it's a pretty heady piece, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I love the title. Uh, what was it called? The Probability of the Impossible. Oh, really? I, I yeah. never knew the title. Yeah. And uh, the concept of uh, light as a solid becoming the base that holds up the object of the flashlight that creates the light yeah. so yeah so oh, that's cool you know it was uh it was a fun piece and but i mean you did a series of those right i did yeah no i mean uh i mean i i'm gonna we're gonna have your book on our website so people can find it and hopefully buy it i mean the devil is in the details right isn't that what's called the, the artist is the artist the in the details damn it okay right, I knew it was right. gonna, yeah um i knew it was a play on that uh yeah it's a it's such a cool thing, and it was so neat to. I mean, I've seen a lot of your work in person. I've had that luxury, like because you have bits and pieces from your stuff over time. You know, from the diners that you did, like the the dilapidated diners that are really with the napkin holders and the mustard and the salt and pepper shakers. And all the details. Yeah, yeah, all the details. That's yeah. so cool. I was describing it to the people I'm staying with because I said, you know, they're like, what are you doing today? I'm like, well, I'm going. You to have the a book, don't you? I do not have a book. Oh, get no, out. I have, no, I have a copy of your book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you sent me one because something I wrote is in the foreword well, or when, something yeah, like that. Yeah, when you, when you leave here today, if this interview goes well, I'll, <laughs> I'll gift you a couple more of them. You can take them back there. And, oh, thank you. Um, you know, pawn them off on someone at a used bookstore. No, not at all. I would <laughs> share them with people who I think might appreciate your art and yeah, need to it would know be about my, it. It would be my pleasure, Jason. Oh, well, thank you. Well, we'll see how this interview goes. If it goes badly, I'll send the book back. <laughs> <laughs> Collect. Yeah, you can no longer have the book I gave you five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I love it. I um, and I and I have several of your little pieces that you've given me over the years on my dresser. The pastels. The uh, chalks. Or uh, crayons, or I think they're. Oh, I would call them oil pastels. Oil pastels. Yeah, in the little white. They in the little come, in the little holder. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's usually a plastic holder. That's a good piece. It's, yeah, it's a great piece, and yeah. I have it on my dresser. Nice. And and then leaning up against it, I have one of the erasers. Cool. Is and it a pink pearl or a Faber Castell? Faber Castell. It's half two tone. Two tone. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. right. And and then, I don't think they even make those anymore. No, no. there's no need. Yeah, yeah. yeah. People don't. Right the other one I used to make for fun was uh, the typewriter eraser, which you probably don't know what that is, but it's it's a little round 
uh, eraser with a metal uh, attachment and it has a little brush on it and the idea was you would get in there at, with a typewriter right. and then brush the crumbs away with the other end of the brush I, my dad used to type all the time and i wonder if he had one of those he probably oh, would have could have been yeah well i have the eraser and then i also have one of your paint brushes uh-huh. and so i'm always constantly rearranging how the three of those things are interfacing with each other hang so on to those those are going to be worth uh, uh about $29 uh, really one of these days well when the day comes that I my life depends on $29 I'll be glad <coughs> yeah. I have them you'll have to kill me though to, to get that value I'll out wait of it them. out <laughs> <laughs> at the you end of the drinking at this the poison end, iced tea you're I giving know, me at the end of the interview you're probably going to want to kill me nah I doubt it I think if we survived all those tacos at uh, oh god ta- I have this memory taco nozzle of me Heimlicking Heimlicking yourself. Heimlicking myself. Heimlicking myself. That's right. We were at uh, Juanita's Mm -hmm. on South Indian Hill below the freeway. Yep. And I took too big a bite and it got lodged. Yep. And and I had to hurl myself backwards against the wall, which turned out to be a pretty damn good strategy. Yeah, it worked. (laughs) I had no idea what was happening. And then all of a sudden. And this yeah. thing popped out of my throat. <laughs> and the guy who works there is like, I know our food's good, but you got to eat it slow, Ooh, man. Yeah. He, was like, he wasn't concerned that you almost died. God. Yeah. That was crazy. That was crazy. Was that your first time having to Heimlich yourself? Yes. And, and last by any chance? My last. First I, and last. I've I learned, was there for it. I've learned my lesson. Yeah. Now, that food was good. That, that was... So that restaurant was right next to a music plus which was a record store that i used to work at back when there were record stores right and i don't know if it was still there when we had lunch that day they may have already closed but i worked at a music plus which is records and videos and music and video was it like a precursor to blockbuster or no blockbuster Blockbuster. yeah they were just all videos though they were just all video i think did blockbuster have cds at any point i don't remember i think they were all video but music plus uh their competitor was the warehouse and i worked at music plus in marina del rey and i worked for like five months before i went to college and then i I had taken a year off and then uh when i came to college i got a job at the music plus in pomona and i lasted like two weeks because they were all racist they were so awful Hmm. they would literally refer to because they had a there were a lot of gangbangers in pomona who would come in and steal stuff but rather than refer to them in, in any acceptable way, they called them spear chuckers and like all this awful stuff. And so, so, I, so wrong. It's totally, I mean, it's totally fucked up. Yeah. And, and when I quit, uh, you know, I didn't want them to get in trouble. So I just, they, they make you sign a thing like, are you, is there a reason you're quitting? And I was like, no, it's all fine. I'm just, you know. Need, this is I the need right more job time to me. do my homework. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, so they gave me no rehire status. So I couldn't get a job at my old store during the Christmas holidays, like with my girlfriend and all my friends and stuff, which I had planned on doing. What, and the reason for that was? Because I blew off the interview inspection. The, the exit? No, the, the last night um, working there, they wanted me to do a, uh, um, they do a thing where they count all the product inventory. Did they frisk you? They didn't frisk me. No, they didn't think I was, they didn't think I stole anything. They just... Uh, they wanted me to do inventory and it was till two in the morning and I had an exam at eight and I'm like, I'm not fucking doing that. And they said, well, if you don't do it, you're fired. I'm like, I already quit, you know? <laughs> and, and I just wasn't going to do it. 
And so they gave me no rehire status, which su that actually sucked. That was a valuable lesson. Yeah. But I wish that I had said, hey, how about I tell upper management that you and everybody who works here is a fucking racist? Should I have that conversation? I, I do regret not doing that. Because they even had management saying things like that. I mean, there's, just, there's no excuse for that. Yeah. So, but that was, you know, 1988, maybe. Reminds me of that great line Kevin Spacey put forth in American Beauty. Which one? There were so many. Uh, he was getting fired from his job. Right. And they weren't giving him any kind of severance. Right. And he told his boss that he was going to file a sexual harassment suit against him because he was going to say that his boss wanted to blow him. Yeah. And the boss looks at him and he says, you are one sick fuck. And Kevin Spacey looks at him and he says, I'm just an ordinary guy with nothing to lose. Yeah. Yeah, that <laughs> is a great, great line. Great yeah. Line. Yeah. That was a good movie. I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. I I had friends I think who... I was going through a midlife crisis then so I could relate to all that shit. Yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> not all of it. <laughs> Not, not the uh, Nazi paraphernalia, oh, the repressed God. homosexuality. Oh, yeah. And and did you just hear today or yesterday that they found this trove of 75 uh, authentic Adolf Hitler Nazi goods behind a wall in some guy's apartment in Argentina? Yeah, I did. I saw wonder that. how it got there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's where everybody went. So I was talking to someone who said, uh, one of the people I interviewed here was talking about how the Germans, I mean, he wasn't excusing what the Germans did, but that they moved to Argentina and turned it into this very functional Latin American country. Yeah, the trains ran on time. Like yeah, that. like Mussolini, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so what are you doing now that you're, I mean, you're no longer a professor, you're traveling around doing art shows, what's, what's going on? What's, where's the career of David Furman today? Well, I'm not as prolific as I was when I was a punk kid. The days are over when I would hit the streets and make arrangements with a gallery for a solo show and then go back into the studio and bust my ass for six months or a year making the stuff and then having the exhibition and going through all the stuff right. that goes along with that. You know, I, I uh, like Kevin Spacey said, you know, nothing to prove, nothing to lose. I mean, I've had 50 solo shows, uh, three NEAs, three Fulbrights, um, innumerable museum exhibitions and lectures and all of that stuff. So I don't know that the wind is out of my sails, but I'm trying to be more thoughtful about what I'm doing. I just had a show that closed the end of March here in Los Angeles. Really, really excellent work, but not work done out of a youthful exuberance to try to make a mark. Hmm. It's interesting to try to explain this. I'm trying to make the work thoughtful. I'm trying to make the work mean something to me. And if somebody likes it, that's great. Right. If somebody doesn't, that's great, too. You can't be in a position of trying to make everybody happy. That's true for everything. Um, yeah. But I'm also slowing down 
I'm almost 72. A lot of stuff has happened in my life in the last four or five years, and it's had an impact on how it is that I appreciate being and a way of being, I guess you could say. In Spanish, there's an expression, manera de ser, and -hmm. it's a way of being. And I think that that is coming into play in my life in a more meaningful way now. Uh, You had asked me when we were talking on the phone, "Hey, hey, what happened to that guy who when asked by some miners to buy uh, uh, alcohol for them, and my response was, oh man, I can't, I'm on parole. Yeah, I always love that. It was a great line. Yeah. It it sort of let everybody off the hook, you know? Yeah, Yeah, totally. But I'm enjoying my life more, and my life is more than the activity of being an artist. It's an activity of being, and it's an activity of being thoughtful and, and, sharing the love with my wife and my family. My mom is 99 years old. I still got her. That's amazing. Uh, Although we've had a couple of close calls and she's a fabulous woman who's not diminished in her intellect one iota, which doesn't work out for me very well sometimes. Uh, (laughs) Not much gets gets by her. Uh, You're still trying to stay out past your curfew and stuff when you visit her. (laughs) David, why don't you trim your beard a little bit? You have such a a cute face. Yeah, my mother gives me the same. Just a little. The Um, same grief. And, you know, we've... uh, Lenny and I had a great conversation 25, 30 years ago where we said all the stuff that we needed to say to each other as a mother and son, mm. which enabled us to move our relationship beyond the normal or beyond expectations. And she's just this great person who I really love and really enjoy being around and, and enjoy sharing with. So between my dogs and my wife and my family and uh, my travels and my time in the studio. My life is pretty rich and pretty full and more balanced now, you know, than ever before. And it's all very tricky, you know. I thought when I was a younger man that I would be able to pull my reins in the older I got and simplify my life. Mm. Well, just wait till you're old, Jason. <laughs> if such is not the case, I think my life is as complex and convoluted as it's ever been. And so this is what you have to look forward to, my son. Well, that's very vague. Um, so I'm, you know, I'd be curious to know, and you can share or not share whatever you want, but I, I just, listening to you and then remembering some of our conversations and the last time we had sushi, you almost sound like you've had some kind of spiritual awakening. And I think of you as someone who would be a devout atheist. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, You know, things matter to you at certain times in your life, and then they don't. Or, you know, changes happen, or things evolve, uh, or priorities shift. And I think that's just kind of not... I, I like to think of it as growing up rather than growing old. I mean, I'm still full of piss and vinegar, uh, at uh, least. Which I'm glad to at see. At least, uh, you know, I'm trying to live up to those expectations. But, uh, yeah, I mean, things that uh, were important to me when I was 35 or 40, 
you know, been there, done that. Yeah. Uh, it's always interesting to move on. And, and I did have somewhat of a spiritual awakening, although, um, you know, it's not something most people know about. Uh, so I feel like I'm putting myself at risk by even talking about this. But I worked with a friend of mine in China for two and a half months in a town called Jingdezhen. It's a town of like uh, 8 million people. Anything less than 10 is a town in China, wow. right? Yeah. And Jingdezhen is, is the porcelain capital of the world. Uh, for over 2,000 years, it's been a porcelain producing center for China. And I went to work there at this place called the Experimental Pottery Factory, the Experimental Sculpture Workshop. And I had this idea that played on an extension of this idea that I had about these mannequin figures on these couches. But I wanted to adorn the contemporary kind of American mid-century modern couches with Ming Dynasty Chinese motifs. And I wanted to kind of marry cultures. I wanted the mannequin figures to be covered in what we call a, a celadon glaze, which references Chinese pots. And the designs and the drawings and stuff that were part of the couch designs all grew out of the art of the Ming and the Sung dynasties. Peonies and uh, erotic drawings that were prevalent in, I guess you would call it marital art. There's a name for it in Japan that's escaping me right now, but there were these wonderful drawings that the parents would give to their children who were getting married and they'd slip it under the mattress. Uh, on their wedding night so they'd have hot sex. Huh. And so these couches were covered with everything from, like I said, these peonies, which are a source of good luck and fecundity and fertility and all that stuff, as well as these erotic drawings and then these mannequin figures in certain erotic positions and referencing history, but also that said, which has nothing to do with what I'm gonna tell you now. Uh, the shop steward was a Chinese man named Joey, and he was quite lovely. And he said, hey, you wanna to go to Tibet? And I said, yeah, when? And this other friend of mine who was working there, a woman named Barbara who taught back east, she and I met up here at my home the following spring, uh, we flew to Beijing. Joey met us at Beijing and we went to Tibet for uh, three weeks. Joey, of course, speaks fluent Mandarin. Right. And uh, he'd been to Tibet five or six times. And he was fortunate enough to be, as a national, to be able to travel beyond the limits of uh, tourist boundaries right. uh, outside of Lhasa. So we took this great train trip from Beijing to Lhasa. It was, it was like a marathon train trip. Uh, How long? I think it was about five days. Mm. It was intense. And You're not kidding. Yeah. Was hey, it one train the whole time? No, one, one train the whole time. We did stop uh, a, a couple of places, but m mostly it was kind of boring because the Altiplano is 
12 to 14,000 feet. Not much grows up there. A lot of yak uh, herders and little huts and stuff, but not much. Uh, it wasn't like hiking the Inca Trail or anything, right. which I also did back in the day. But we got to Lhasa, and it was like this amazing, amazing world that one could only imagine. Now, it had been pretty much xenophiled, is that the word, you know, turned into uh, China. Chinese invaded in the 50s, I think it was. And they've been the occupiers ever since then. So that's 60, 70 years of occupation. Um, the Chinese were put in place of everything of any importance in, in Tibet. All the merchant class were Chinese. All the signage, all the agricultural co-ops, everything was Chinese. And you knew this because in all the signage, it was at first Chinese in neon up above and then Tibetan script down below, smaller letters mm. and slowly, yeah, symbol, slowly, symbolistic right. of the subservient nature yeah. and so on and so forth. But we visited a bunch of these monasteries. We went to one monastery, I think it was called Sana. Here we're getting, we're, we're leading up to it now. Spiritual awakenings it's of okay. some sort. You don't have to, so, we're not breaking for a commercial well, or anything. Okay, <laughs> so Barbara and Joey are wandering around this monastery, which was uh, 12th century. Where's Joey from? Joey's from uh, Beijing, actually. Okay, so Joey's Chinese. Yeah, he's Chinese. Yeah, he's Chinese. Yeah, yeah. And he's chosen the American name Joey, yeah, which yeah. is the most. I think Joey or something, and then, <laughs> like, I'm Dawi. David. Oh, okay. That's the closest thing. Oh, Dawi, that's nice. They do it phonetically. So, yeah. But Joey and Barbara are wandering around the monastery, and I'm kind of, it's sort of labyrinthine, and there's all these altars and beautiful prayer lounges and color and just remarkable. And uh, I go into this room, and there's this old Tibetan monk sitting on a chair, a bench actually, and and there was a cat that was sitting in his lap. He was just stroking the cat. And he motioned for me, come on over here, sit down with me. So, you know, what do I got to lose? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> just American and Tibet with nothing know, to lose. I know. So I sit down with him and the cat kind of crawls over and uh, half of its body is draped over my leg and the other half over his leg, his robe. And uh, we're both petting and then he turns to me and smiles and he goes, Dalai Lama. And he makes the thumbs up sign. And I go, mm. you know, yeah, yeah, Dalai Lama, you know, yada, yada. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just sitting there quietly. And I really don't know uh, how much time passed, but I was, I found myself sobbing. I was crying mm. and tears were coming down my cheeks and and the monk had his arm around me and Joey and Barbara wandered in and they said, where have you been? We thought we lost you. Hey, are you okay? And I, I was kind of speechless and uh, I really don't quite know what happened, but uh, a counselor friend of mine explained it to me. And she said, uh, you had a conversion experience. Mm. And I said, well, what's that? And she said, that's where you 
open yourself up to receive a certain kind of energy and it embraces you and you embrace it. And I don't know what any of that stuff means, but I had this very inexplicably profound experience with this guy who, I don't know, he had to be 70, 75 years old. Or he looked that. He was really only 40. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, so I don't know whether that jaded me or tainted me or, you know, somehow affected me uh, to the degree that some stuff that used to be important became less so and other stuff that wasn't so much uh, became more so. And it's it was kind of like just a balancing. And Luann reminded me, she's an Aikido, or was a, an Aikido master. Master, mistress. But she was a... <laughs> Never she, sounds right to yeah, say that no, way. Yeah, no, no. But she was a, a third don uh, black belt hmm. in Aikido, and she studied it for uh, 15 years. And she says, well, you know, you've you already had been having experiences with Sonam Rinpoche whenever he would come to Claremont and you would see him. He's a, a Buddhist monk that is the head of this monastery in Toronto. Right. And uh, I said, yeah, that's right. In fact, later I'll show you a picture of him and me. Uh, he's the egg man, I call him. Really? He, he that's has what this, people call me. He, he, he has this beautifully perfect round egg-shaped head and he's, he's a happy guy. He's got this smile and this twinkle. And I said, I don't know how to explain who he is to me, to you, Luann, but, you know, he he makes me want to be a better person. Like a line out of a Jack Nicholson yeah. movie yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was true. And so, you know, I thought about certain things in my life, like uh, competition and how, you know, maybe when I was a younger kid, competition was a good thing. But maybe now that I'm reassessing you know, where I am and where I want to go and how I want to be at the end of it all. Maybe I want to be cooperative rather than competitive. Maybe that will work better for me. So that's my, that's the width and breadth of my spiritual enlightenment. Uh, I still like a good dirty joke. Um, <laughs> Uh, what can I tell you? Well, no, you don't have to, you don't have to, I mean, and first of all, you don't have to tell me more and, you know, you don't have to defend it or like dilute it. Um, Here's some stuff. Near death experiences play a big part of the changes in my life. And uh, I'm, as I said to you before, I'm kind of a pathologically private person. And so for me to even be speaking about this in, in a public forum is, is, is contradictory and a little unnerving for me. But I'm having a hard time getting it out. I've, I've had cancer four times. And look at the expression on your face. Like you, you had no idea. I knew one. I yeah, knew about one. That yeah. was uh, 17 or 18 years ago. Uh, prostate cancer. Yeah, I remember that. And I was doing these erotic teapots made out of vegetable parts and right. and they had to do with fecundity and 
procreation and virility and all of this stuff. And in the course of my qualifying myself for this Fulbright that I received in 1999, I had to have a physical. And so I'm working in the studio, working on this erotic stuff. And then I have to go to the doctor for my physical. And he says, hey, your PSA is jumping around a little bit. He says, it's not that much, but let's do a biopsy. And just to make sure, you know, that everything is okay. Well, I won the lottery. Turns out, you know, I had to postpone my Fulbright in, two, in, in 99 to 2000, and they were very gracious. They knew me because I'd had two previous Fulbrights, and they, they held it for me. And in the meantime, I had uh, uh, my surgery and had a chance to heal and stuff. The irony in terms of the art context was here I was making this, right. this stuff, and not only was my virility and my fecundity and all that stuff threatened, my life was threatened, you know. If it hadn't been the intrepidness of my doctor and the physical for the Fulbright, it would have gone undetected and I would have uh, might maybe not been sitting here. You know, so the happy version is, you know, I'm still here. But that said, I guess it was in 2012, I had another cancer. No, in 2008, I had a chunk of my lung removed. Oh, wow. Yeah, just a, what they called a wedge resection. And there was a spot on my lung that showed up. And then I get this phone call on my tape machine. Mr. Furman, we need you to come back and get x-rayed again because one of the doctors found a spot on your lung. Well, if that, if that doesn't, yeah. you know, that's like dipping your nuts in ice water. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they end up in the back of your throat, you know. Yeah. So uh, the short version of that is I had, it was enough impetus for me to stop smoking immediately (laughs) and and I had surgery and the doctor said well I wish I could tell you this was related to smoking but it wasn't and I said oh well cool does that mean I can start smoking cigars again (laughs) well he and Luann had no sense of humor about it and uh, it was like the audience is just staring at you yeah oh yeah so there was that in 2007, I think, or eight, somewhere around there. Then I had an oral cancer where I had something growing on the roof of my mouth, and that had to be exorcised. Mm. And the doctor was terrific. I had a really great surgeon. And uh, he says, you're done with this, man. No problem. And uh, I went on with my life, and two years later, they don't know whether it was a metastasis or the same cancer just coming back in a different place in my mouth. And I had to have a more radical surgery, totally deformed me, as you can tell. And I had to have radiation every day for six weeks, which was worse than the surgery. Yeah. And I'm still here, you know, I'm three or so, almost three years out from that. But it, it sort of readjusts your priorities. And, right. and you know that sort of quick line about stuff like that separating the wheat from the chaff? Yeah. It does. Yeah. It, ac- bet, yeah. it actually does. Yeah, it's real. You know, yeah. um, but it's something that you don't walk away from. You know, it's, it's like the difference between smoking a joint and taking acid. Right. You know, smoke a J, 
hey, no problem, go to the supermarket, you know, buy the quart of milk and the loaf of bread and all that, no problem, get in the car, drive home. You know, take some serious acid and you don't go to the store to buy a quart of milk. <laughs> <laughs> or if you do, it's going to be if a you very do, it's different trip be to the a, store. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, so, you know, it's not something that you ever forget about. Right. It's not something that you dwell on, but you're reminded, you know, frequently that, you know, every uh, moment that you have is a gift and make good use of it. Don't, don't fuck up, you know? Yeah. So, Jesus, I can't even believe I'm telling you this shit. It's what happens. It's man. what happens. It's yeah. like I feel right at home with this with this big thing sticking in my face. Yeah, no, and I can ha- I can handle it. Yeah, you're doing great. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So I've been so, revealing. Good. Well, what are you going to reveal to me now? Oh, whatever you want to know, man. But I want to. There's a couple things I want to talk about okay. about this, if you don't mind. First of all, I just want to, you know, I don't know, offer you some reflections on what you said. When you talked about being there with the monk and having this incredible, you know, I'm going to call it a catharsis. I don't know if that's what it yeah, felt like. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you snot s- was coming out of my nose. I was sobbing, you know. It was just, yeah, I mean, so it the, was, whole, the whole yeah. whole thing. I mean, and then you said, I don't know, maybe that made me jaded. Like, that was how you referred to it. To me, that's the opposite. Like, you know, saying that that helped that was the beginning of you restructuring your priorities that's not a function of being jaded in my opinion you know that's like you 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 got in touch with real feelings for the first time in a while it sounds like yeah and and that incredibly through, through no fault of my own no fault no no one's blaming you <laughs> <laughs> and and that you know profoundly human experience became more of interest to you than making art for a moment and I, and this to me is just the opposite of jaded like you know jaded is something different it's it's you know not seeing value in something anymore because it's stupid you know but this is like you you experience something you it almost sounds like you experienced yourself in a new way and you wanted to make room for more self-experience and that's not jaded and no, I appreciate that. That's that's very kind and perceptive of you, and and it was probably, um, if nothing else, a little defensive of me to uh, um, couch it in uh, such a jaded way. Now, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> so yeah, you're not entirely not jaded. I just don't think that was how it manifested. No, no. And and I I'll tell you, this is I'm having just a fascinating experience listening to you talk because you're 72 yesterday. Uh, I talked to Bobby Slayton, who's this really famous comedian who was nice enough to give me some of his time for my podcast. And it really was generous of him, which he'd be the first to tell you that it was. <laughs> and, and, but he's, you know, he's at a point in his career where he doesn't want to do it anymore. And he was very open about that. He's like, I just don't want to do this anymore. You know, now I have to do it because it's the only way I can make money. But he's like, I'm just sick of it. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of that. I'm sick of the whole thing. And, like, he's got this unfinished autobiography called 40 Years in Showbiz Hell, which I want to read. You know, I said, you need help finishing it? Like, I, I want to I read this book. What does it Tell take? Tell him you yeah. edited it. I offer it. I'm like, can I write it with you? Can, what, do you what do you need to see this book done? He's, he's not the kind of be, guy to be receptive to that. But, but you never know. I might break him down eventually. Um, but my point being, 
I was listening to him talk, and he said, there's so many young comics now, and he said, I just don't have the drive. I don't want to go down the hill. It's not worth it for me to drive down to Hollywood to do a set. And I'm thinking, like, you know, he's like, they asked me to come to the, Hollywood, to the comedy store, and, you know, they're doing a whole lineup of all headliners, and would I come do an hour, 20 minutes, or half an hour, and they paid me 100 bucks or whatever. He's like, I did it. I, I left so fast, I think they forgot to pay me, or I forgot to get paid, or whatever. And listening to him be at that point in his career, when someone like me, like, I would kill for a half hour at the comedy store. Not that I would kill at the comedy store for half an hour. <laughs> I that, would goes, that goes without saying. <laughs> uh, I would kill for 15 minutes and, 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 and uh, they'd regret the second half. Yeah, I'm at a place where I would love nothing more than to have that opportunity that's one that's... Not, he doesn't just take it for granted. He just doesn't even want it anymore. Like, he's over it. And listening to you talk about the galleries and, you know, it's like you're, you're just not motivated to go bust your ass in the studio for a year so you can put together a show and, and be at a gallery. And I remember being an artist. That's how we met. I was an art student of yours. And there was a time in my life where being in a gallery would have been, you know, the equivalent of getting a set at the comedy store. Yeah, yeah. And it's just fascinating that I'm, you know, having a chance to hang out with people who are kind of at this other phase in their career. Like see, done see what it. you have to look forward to? Yeah, not caring. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's a sign of accomplishment for both of you, you know? I mean, it's, like you said, nothing to prove and nothing to lose, and I like both of those. Like, Well, I, I don't want to lose my sense of patience with the world, but, you know, that opening reception that I had to attend, I said to Luann, I said, God, that was painful. That was just, you know, I had to sit around and smile at these people. And I had to listen to the same inane questions, you know. Right. Hey, how long did it take you to make that? <laughs> you know, my, That's my, the least important thing to you, you know, in that process. My, but my response is, oh, about 40 years. <laughs> 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 you know, but I appreciate what you're saying. And you're absolutely right, you know. Things that matter to you now in your 40s uh, are going to matter less so in your 60s. Right. And it's all part of uh, the natural process, I suspect. And they're different than the things that matter to me in my 20s, you know. Like, Absolutely. Like, personally, I'm, I'm doing, you know, this comedy thing. I'm, in, I'm competing, so to speak, with 20-year-olds who are younger and can survive on less sleep and they're doing more drugs and they're like, you know... But you have a wealth of experiences wealth from of experience. from which to draw on. Uh, absolutely, like I'm and so your advantage, a much better your comedian than any of them could oh, ever yeah. be. Absolutely. Uh, no, I mean, I just I I have the luxury of that, and I just have to figure out how to do it. But but for example, like I've developed this show called Talk About Funny. It's a comedy showcase talk show combination where I'm the host and. And so I do my set, and I bring up comics, and I interview them, and I bring up the next comic, and then we, we have a whole series of things that we do as a part of this show. And I'm developing this show so I can take this show on the road and then do it with local comics in different cities. And now suddenly I show up in a city with a show, not show up in a city and asking for five or ten minutes of you know stage time as a part of someone else's show. And that, to me, is a... So far, it's working. I've already been invited to Denver, and I've got a guy who, who wants to produce a show with me in L.A. So... When you're in Denver, you can go into a, 
a marijuana store and buy some lollipops. I, you know, I, I actually performed in one of those dispensaries one night. <laughs> I did 25 or 22 minutes in a dispensary because that's how long it takes to do five minutes of material in a dispensary. <laughs> it, you got to it, huh? Yeah, it's, well, it wasn't my fault. I had to, you know, make sure they were understanding everything. They, they did not... They did not get it. Like one guy, I always I tell the story a lot on the podcast, but you haven't heard it. Uh, this guy, you know, I told I had written this noob joke, and it was pretty long, and I was just working it out about having a, an astrologer, and and I only want an Indian astrologer because if someone's going to lie to me, I don't want it to be in their first language, you know. And and I just had all this stuff about <laughs> about this astrologer, and and this guy, eight minutes after I finished that bit. He's like, you don't smoke pot, but you have an astrologer? And I had to stop, and I was like, that was eight fucking minutes ago. Like, is that how T long it time, took? Time delay. His, syn his synapses were, you know, put on postpone. Yeah, it, he, it took eight minutes to go in his ear, process as a thought, and then come out of his mouth. You know, and I guarantee, he interrupted me mid-sentence. So I know he just said it as soon as he could formulate the words. It wasn't like... Kind of like I've been doing with you. Uh, <laughs> very different. You still have your brain cells functioning, from what I can tell. Mostly. Yeah. Are you high right now? No. Okay. Uh, you, you could admit it if you were. It's California. You're, yeah, you're, we're legal. You're legal recreationally and medicinally. And mm -hmm. You'd qualify for both, it sounds like, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. But, uh, God, if I was only 20 again. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Right. And it's, it's uh, you know, it's a good thing. I, I saw these people wasting their lives, just wasting. They were so fucking stoned. I'd never seen anybody as high as these people, you know, and I've been to lots of dead shows and they're youngsters, too. Huh? No, they're young. Yeah. yeah. And that's really bad because cognitively, uh, you know, there's all kinds of information about uh, marijuana stunting someone's cognitive development. It, you know, the brain is still pretty plastic when you're 16, 17, 18 years old. And, you know, I mean, at it, it, the college where I taught, uh, you know, I had a nine o'clock class and people would drift in at 930, 10, 1030, right. you know, because they would, as they say, wake and bake, you know, yeah. and that was what you did. And I said, dude, you're not going to be able to learn how to throw pots while you're high. It might feel good and you might think you're doing an outtake in in ghost or something but uh you know you're gonna get nowhere fast so and most of them most yeah. of them did yeah throwing's hard yeah making arts harder i i learned uh a lot about life i was high at the time <laughs> throwing a pot on a wheel um and not well certainly not on the level of art in fact i don't even think it was anything more than a lump of clay when i was done but but I remember having this incredible epiphany that uh, in order to throw the pot, you had to center it on the wheel. But in order to turn it into something other than a lump of clay, you had to touch the pot. And every time you touch the pot, it went off center and you had to bring it back on center. And, and so the art of throwing a pot was, was learning how to keep it just enough off center that you could actually work with it. And also dealing with this, you know, bringing it back to center all the time. And and I was like, wow, that's just like life, you know, like you, you try deep. to have this perfect life. Deep. It was pretty deep. You know, I was deep for a stoner. Um, I was never a stoner, but I was stoned that one night. And that was last week. <laughs> this was in college back when I used to think about things. And but I remember it was a big deal for me. It was a real like I just thought it was the coolest thing. I was like, this is really what life is like. You can't just 
you can't just create this perfect life and then not touch it because then you're not that's not living you know you're not going to make a life that way you're just going to have a perfectly centered lump of clay you're not going to have a beautiful pot and it was very cool for me you're like i can't tell if you're smirking or smiling but uh there's so many ways to be young huh (laughs) (laughs) so that's not profound to you in any way uh it might have been if I was with you at the moment and high. <laughs> sorry, okay, sorry Jason. No, that's all right. Hey, okay. I, I still stand by it. I mean, because I meet so many people in the spiritual world, I'm in the yoga world and I used to be in the meditation world. And, and I meet a lot of people who are trying to have this idealized life as they see it. And the lycra life. The Lycra life, yeah, the Lululemon outfit. They just think if they can just do this thing, then their life will be fine. If they can just accomplish this or accomplish that or achieve that or make things look a certain way, that they'll be happy. Uh, That's so funny, isn't it? It's really, uh, you know, kind of magical thinking. Yeah, magical is not, that's a nice word for it. I, I, it, it's, it, I don't want to get cosmic on you again, but no, do but, it. But I, you know, I never thought that. It sounds to me like these people are thinking of happiness as a goal, right? And, and a thing. Yeah, and and this is simple simplification, but but happiness seems to be something that's always been a byproduct of one's existence. It's not a goal. It's 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 something that happens when you do something with passion and commitment and what comes from that will give you something that's like the cherry on the ice cream soda yeah which you might call happiness or uh, i don't know i never thought of it as a goal well i remember my med- my meditation teacher used to say you know don't worry about what your experience is when you're meditating because you're not meditating for the experience of meditation you're meditating for the benefits you derive from Afterwards. meditating regularly yeah yeah you know and 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 it's not even the, how you feel the minute you're done with your meditation, although that's fine if you feel good, but it's really about the life that you cultivate from having a steady practice. And that's to me, is, the, is a parallel Com- yeah. to what you're saying. The commitment. The commitment to an activity. Um, yes. That's different, though, from what I'm saying in this moment. It's like he was really trying to get people unhinged from worrying about what their experience of a of a particular meditation sitting was at the moment at the moment because that doesn't matter and a lot of times it's unpleasant a lot of times you sit there and you know you 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 don't experience bliss you experience every ounce of stress in your body and the thoughts that you can't get out of your mind and and you feel like well that was a waste of time and he was pretty adamant and i do agree with him you know that that those meditations are just as valuable as the blissful meditations because it's the act of the doing and the building of the practice that becomes the meaning. It's the person you become because you have a steady practice that gives it the meaning. It's the ways in which you can handle the adversity of your life based on the fact that you have built and maintained a practice. Those are the benefits of the practice. It's the degree to which you 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 realize that you have a choice and you don't have to go ballistic <laughs> <laughs> well <clears throat> i'll just say for from his point of view his schooling it's 
And granted, he said a lot of things to rationalize his deeply flawed personality, but the meditation practice, at least, that we did was, you know, really, it was really just a resting into the self. It was, I don't want to teach it on the podcast, but it was a very, very passive meditation. Sit comfortably, close your eyes, do nothing for 20 minutes, lie down for five, go on about your day. Like, that's the technique. But the, te the understanding and the technology that belies that is pretty profound. And, and the idea was to create this habit of self-reference that's very deep, like referencing the deepest part of the self as a, a point from which to respond to a situation, as opposed to getting so used to having a reaction that comes from our more superficial self, our personality, our ego, our, our emotions, like that that there's this part of our being that's a part of all being that we tap into when we meditate. And that's where wisdom lies. Wisdom doesn't lie in, you know, reading the right books and learning how to say the right things in a situation to make the other person feel better or worse. It's really about tapping into this part of existence. And that was what the meditation did was help to habituate that in the physiology. And I can say from doing it for seven years that it worked, you know, and I can say from not having done it much in the last seven years that it worked <laughs> because in not doing it, I feel you can, you the can, lack of that, yeah. you know, and when I do do it, it's like, God, how am I not doing this every day? Like every once in a while I'll meditate once or for a few days in a row, I'll be like, Oh God, it's so good to have my practice back and something will derail it the next day and months go by before I do it again. And, and, um, but I remember there was a time it was a much, uh, like I wouldn't leave the house now without brushing my teeth. There was a time I wouldn't leave without meditating. Yep. And that's a huge uh, cul-de-sac from where we were. But I feel in listening to you, you said earlier that, you know, rather than trying to create volume of work, I may, I may be paraphrasing, but this is what I heard, rather than trying to create a volume of work, or work for a show or doing, you're really focused on creating work that's going to have meaning, meaning to you. And I'm assuming meaning that's going to endure. We're, yeah. We're, well, I'm not even sure about that. I don't, okay. I don't, I don't really care about my legacy. Um, okay. So that, so that alone so, is an interesting so, shift. So, you know, whether it endures or not, doesn't matter to me. I won't be here. Who gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you are a Republican after yeah. all. <laughs> but, but uh, um, you know, I, I was just emailing a really good friend up in Portland, and, and I said, you know, you just get tired of living up to someone else's expectations. I'm not going to do this thing, you know, because it's expected of me. It, I'm not going to do this thing because it, it, ultimately it's going to make me uncomfortable. And I don't like that feeling. Right. And I don't have to do it. And I don't have to make excuses for not doing it, you know, because that's, that's something I don't need to do. I make a decision for myself and what's in my best interest. And I don't have to worry about placating somebody else, right. uh, at least in this context of the thing that was placed in front of me that was expected that, you know, I said, fuck it. That was, you know, I said, and fuck, fuck that guy too. <laughs> I remember, so, do, do you remember Obama's uh, speech at the White House Correspondents' Dinner when he said, I don't have a bucket list, 
but I do have a list that rhymes with bucket. <laughs> God, was, wasn't he a great president? Uh, he was the best. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't perfect, but boy, who's he was, who cares? He was wonderful. Who's going to be perfect? He, he made me so proud, you know. Yeah. He was just remarkable. Yeah. And this could segue into Kathy Griffin now. Oh, yeah, Kathy right? Griffin. Yeah, let's talk about her. Yeah. Wow. I just thought what she did was hysterical. I thought it was so funny and so poignant and so full of uh, references that were too lofty for the normal reactionary right. individual. I think I'd mentioned to you before, you know. Tell me, give me all the references because people listening well, aren't going to know what they are. So let's well, hear it. Like in art history, uh, you know, there are there's a plethora of images of David and Goliath, not the least of which is uh, Caravaggio's David with the head of Goliath. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly what Kathy Griffin did, you know, holding right. up. She's David and Trump is Goliath. And Trump is uh, Goliath and he's slain. And it's, you know, goodness over evil. Uh, you know, all of the, all of the stuff. And that never even came to light. But even if it hadn't, you know, we're talking about comedy here, you know, and edge, you know, and that's where you want to be, right yeah. on that edge. Yeah. And fuck those people who say, oh, you've crossed the line, you know. I think it's up to the individual to decide where that line is. Yeah. And she and her collaborator, the photographer, came up with this image. And I hope she stays as as provocative and confrontational and in your face as anyone can be. I think she's really great and brave. And uh, I think that this whole thing is just pointed to uh, our president as just being a terrible bully as if we didn't know already. Yeah. Well, I watched, um, I, I had found out about it late you know, so I watched a lot of coverage around it because suddenly by the time I found out about it, you could see all the reactions on YouTube on The View, which is, you know, and every other fucking pointless all TV those, program. All those sanctimonious, you know. Bitches. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I, I wrote on Facebook before I, before I polluted my opinion with what other people thought and allowed it to get watered down or risked it getting watered down. I saw her picture and somebody posted something and she's like, and she had a video where she said, I'm deeply sorry. And I went, I went over the line and I wrote, don't be a fucking pussy. This was great, you know, and don't back down from it. You did it. And own trust it. me, whatever own the it. negative impact is, it's not going to be reversed by you apologizing, you know, not enough. Like yeah. you're still going to get, you're still not going to work for CNN anymore. And I hope know, they rehire her. I mean, I personally, I hate her. I don't think she's in the slightest bit interesting or funny at all. And I never have. I've never, ever liked her. But Fuck you. The, this but, interview is over. But that's beside the point. <laughs> like, I, I still respected this piece. Now, I, granted, I fucking hate Trump. And, you know, that image isn't something I have a hard time with. But I really felt like, as an artist, she made a decision and she should stand by it. And not just apologize and cave because she's afraid of her career. You know, Trump has said and done so many things that are so much worse than that. And he's the fucking president. And, you know, he doesn't apologize for any of it. And he should for all of it. 
and he never would. And then, you know, all these people saying, oh, she went too far, but she apologized, and that should do it. I'm like, I don't know. Personally, I was like, fuck all that. She did it, and she should be either rewarded for being that brave, continue the conversation around it, but it just really bothered me that she cowered and that she apologized the way she did. Well, she got ganged up on, you know, big time. Immediately by everyone on the planet. Absolutely. Yeah, and she caved. And I just think she shouldn't have, you know. I mean, I think stick it out. I mean, it's, it's all good. Tomorrow this won't matter. Yeah. You know? And we're already on to, you know, something else. The Comey trials or whatever whatever came next. Yeah. You know? America's yeah. a short attention span. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And I don't think... I, to me, what she did by backing down was more damaging to herself as an artist in the long term than the reparations made by that apology. And so I just find that, you know, awful. But I mean, some people might disagree and I think, hey, she fucked up and she apologized and she should have. I, I just don't feel that way. I don't either. Yeah. What do you think about like Trump's son? who I guess is a special needs being to some degree, right? He's on the autistic spectrum or something. Is that what I'm led to understand? I haven't researched it, but... Could be. Yeah, that's, that's what I've heard. Um, and, you know, he was traumatized by seeing this picture of his father, and they used that as... Well, what as were they example. even showing him that picture for? A little 8 or 11-year-old or whatever? What, well, I don't know that anyone went out of their way to show him. It was just Well, it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me. And if they'd show it to him and then get the reaction and then use that. <laughs> yeah, that's possible. I mean, That's kind of cynical, but... Yeah. You know, I, I didn't like the press going after Chelsea Clinton when she was a awkward, you know, little kid. I didn't right. like the media going after Obama's children. And I don't know that I like, uh, I think the kids are off limits. They should be somehow. I agree. You know? I mean, not, not his daughter who's old enough to work in the White House. As far as I'm concerned, she can take as much targeting as we can give her. I mean, if she's got a, an office in the West Wing, which is fucking unheard of, then, yeah. then she's fair game. But a minor? I totally agree <clears throat> yeah, with you. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, she's not a minor. She's an adult. No, she's an adult and making adult decisions and deserves all the consequences. Well, one, one of that. wonders about that. Well, <laughs> she's making decisions as an adult. Yes, and uh, and and so she should be uh, held responsible for them, positive and negative. Yeah. Well, I think of uh, what was that great movie, Bullworth? Yeah. There was a very outrageous uh, scene. Uh, and very distasteful when uh, Warren Beatty is in a church and he tells all the people in the in the church, you know, you people are going to have to put your chicken wings down, you know, and I mean, and it was so offensive, mm. you know, but, you know, if there's going to be any change, all of these uh, white liberal people who put on their pink hats and march in the streets that isn't going to do a fucking thing. People are going to have to make a commitment to getting involved and not in a self-serving kind of way. If they're, you know, people are going to have to be canvassing. People are going to have to be holding meetings with people from their community. People are going to have to be electing smart thinking uh, people on the local level and all the way up. Right. You know, I have this great newspaper that I saved the day after or the two days after Trump was elected of the L.A. Times. 
front page showing a million people in, in the streets, you know, protesting his election. Well, so what? You know, it doesn't, it, that stuff doesn't cut it anymore. Right. There's going to have to be some retooling and some rethinking and some serious re-strategizing. And it can't be, oh, I'm against Trump. You got to be for something that speaks to a broader population, that, that expresses a commitment to compassion and to caring and goes beyond the, I'm in it for myself and I want to get it while I can. You know, I don't have kids, but I do care about future generations and what they're going to be left with after I'm gone. Of course, who gives a shit because I'll be gone. <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that in there. But, but no, you know, I mean, something more has to happen than has been happening. Yeah. And I don't know how it's going to coalesce, but, uh, you know, maybe we'll see it in 2018. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, it's, 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 we're dealing with something that's a game we don't understand the rules to. Like, he's changed the game. And we're still playing by old rules, oh, yeah. with old old technology, and and we just, uh, you know, we don't understand it. I mean, I I, I knew we'd lost. I, I mean, I, I I kept thinking and just assuming Hillary would win, but when I started looking at reasons she might have lost, when your opponent's name is in your slogan, that's a bad sign. If your slogan is "Love Trump's hate," that's really fucking clever. And you're saying his name every time you promote your campaign. Yeah. That is a terrible decision as a marketer. You want to be about something, not against something, which is what you were just saying a minute yeah. ago. Yeah. And I was reading an article about that today. Because of the Georgia election that the Democrats just lost by 5% instead of 25%. So really, it was a victory if we are capable of seeing it that way. We didn't win the election, but we won the argument. <laughs> I didn't make yeah, that up. that's that's the consolation, you know, prize. Huh? Well, it's, it's, it shows that if the it shows that it shows that some uh, demographics are shifting. Huh? Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this that was a long shot. That but they, in 2018, if they if the Democrats lose by two percent again in all of the uh, congressional seats that are up, you know, that's that's going to speak volumes. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Somehow gerrymandering has only seemed to benefit the Republicans, at least according to the Democrats. Uh, you know, they keep redistrict, redistricting everything, which I don't understand how that's allowed. Uh, and it's done very strategically in ways that that shift. Every 10 years, every 10 years, uh, you know, there's a census and the borders are determined by populations mm. uh, in certain areas, I guess. So that's what does it? That's how they... Yeah, every 10 years, the borders okay. can have the potential for changing. I see. Well, it's all things I don't understand. So, But it's, but it's been a problem for years and years. I remember a political cartoon from the uh, late 1700s that showed the weird shape of a, a district in the form of a vulture or something that a political cartoonist of the time had done, which was a poignant statement about... Yeah. Uh, you know, the very problem we're speaking of. So as we apply the lessons of this conversation to our own lives, uh, since you've tell, told me what you're not doing, what are you doing? Like, how, I know you said you, you want to spend 
time being more Well, I just spent, uh, you know, about a year working on a body of work that I put forth in an exhibit that opened in March and closed in May. So I'm still doing that. Okay. I mean, it's June, man. Get, what's, what's next? I know. What's next? <laughs> I need to, I can take a rest and recharge my batteries. Yeah. One thing I didn't talk about is levels of energy. Okay. And the older that you get, energy becomes a precious commodity. There's probably an expression that your grandmother used. You can't put your tuchus in more than one place at a time. Yeah, right? we, my, my step-aunt <laughs> step said, aunt. Uh, you can't dance at every bar mitzvah. Uh, that's, that's how it. she liked to say it, which yeah. is my favorite way of saying yeah, it that yeah. I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that presumes that all the bar mitzvahs are on the same day. Though. <laughs> <laughs> but that uh, was then, and this is now. You know, a month and a half later, um, what am I doing? My mom's 99, right? So I'm the patriarch of the family now. Right. So I've taken over a whole lot of family responsibilities that cut into what might have been creative time. But I have to do this stuff creatively. You know, I'm looking after my mom. Um, I'm spending more time up in Ventura at this little place that we have. Right. And that's been great. If there was any part of the house that needed attention, it was the backyard area. And it's it was sloping. And and the view out the front is so spectacular and dramatic. And you can see the ocean and the Channel Islands. And we woke up the first morning and I looked out the windows in the bedroom. I said, honey, there's islands out there. <laughs> you know, it was really fabulous. So I've been spending a fair amount of time kind of redeveloping the backyard area. Not okay. doing the work myself, but doing some of it, but doing the planning and the design and, uh, you know, getting the right guys to do the job. And I just finished building two three-foot by seven-foot by 28-inch high planter boxes for my garden stuff that I like to do. Cool. Very cool and 27 inches high because you get to be my age and you don't want to bend over so much anymore. Yeah, totally. I'm I'm half your age. I don't want to bend over so much anymore. Yeah. So, you know, I'm getting smarter the older I get. And like I said before, you know, priorities shift, just like you acknowledged Mm -hmm. when you were 20 and now you're 40s, things change. So... You know, I'm living my life, enjoying it, trying to keep it all together, not worrying about keeping everybody happy, but looking after my family and my loved ones. And, you know, this is and this is so great for me to as graciously and gracefully as I possibly can be open to you. You you were one of the good students that I had. You were one of the people who I knew I would never have to worry about. Really? Yep. And that's in the, what way? Because my mom worries about me constantly. Well, that's because she's your mother. <laughs> you know, there were kids that went through the college, and I went, oh, man, that kid, he's, he's going to have problems. I never thought that you were ever even near that league of problem kid. Hmm. You, were, you were so great. You made me proud to teach you. Wow. So, I mean, that's, that's high praise coming from no, me. No, that is high I praise coming from I anyone. Don't, I don't dish that out to, to yeah. most people. I'm pretty reserved in my uh, 
compliments these days. I'm turning into a grump, <laughs> you know. But uh, yeah, there's a few kids that have gone through the program, and uh, I knew that I would never, I would never be fearful of what was going to happen to them. Hmm. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, I had a, it, it was a really neat experience for me when I sent out my first comedy videos. You know, and you called me immediately. Like it wasn't. Uh, my memory is that you called. Maybe you texted me. It's like we need to get on the phone or whatever. I don't remember the exact course of events, but essentially you called me and you wanted to get on the phone. And and, and the first thing you did was grill me academically. I was so pedantic. Wasn't about, I? Uh, that was great. It was. It was. It was. I, I loved it. I mean, well, and I'll tell you I what remember, I loved about it. I remember. It. I started asking you who you listened to. Yeah, immediately you know? it was like who. Because there's because the I have a supremely respectful position about history and that doesn't mean that that means all history and the history of comedy is one of them right and there's people that you know laid the groundwork for you to be doing what you're doing yeah and it's important to know who they are and what they did and not that you copy them or you know that you appreciate them and know that you're carrying on in a long line of uh important people who've made a difference right yeah well i because you're going to make a difference we'll see we'll see i have no idea honestly i mean first of all just speaking to that what was really cool for me was you know because i remember being on i think my daughter was in the car and watching a movie or something while we were talking and we were on the way to the airport and you reminded me of what it is to be an academic to me, you were like, you're saying you, you were looking at it in terms of history. To me, you were looking at it as an academic. It was almost like I had signed up involuntarily for a, a history of comedy class, you know? And it was like, you're, if you're going to take comedy, Jason, you need to know all this stuff. And I got a bunch of assignments for me right away, you know? And I just <laughs> like I said, was, I was just so pedantic. It's, <clears throat> I, I didn't object to it. I thought it was really. I mean, first of all, it's your way of showing love and support. Number and one. affection, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so, and I knew that out of the gate. You know, the, you and I have known each other well enough for long enough and have the, the kind of playful and provocative relationship that we have. I've never, ever questioned that you were on my side. So when you called me to talk about that, I, I knew that you were only coming from a place of interest, curiosity, and, and support. And love. And love, yes. And, here. Yeah. And I, and so there was never, not that I think you're too worried about it, but there was never any doubt in my mind. Well, how'd you feel when you got up on the stage the first uh, time, you know, or your It's an interesting balls, question. The, I don't, I don't talk about it Were balls in the back of your throat or, you know? Well, uh, what happened was I had... Did you have diarrhea? <laughs> uh, well, that's, that's, that's... That's later. That's still, you know, my intestines go into convulsions every time I go on stage. Um, I try not to eat for four hours before I perform, and then I'm usually You know, okay. musicians take a heart medication before they play. It's, it's a blood pressure med. It's called atenolol, and oh. it lowers your blood pressure a little bit, but it keeps your hands from sweating, too, oh, yeah. you know. So, like, you might want to get a script for that and then pop one, you know, three or four hours before you go on, and you'll be as cool as a cucumber. It's not a trank. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. But Thank I, have you. A, I have I'll a friend who I have a friend who uh, played first violin in the Berlin Symphony Orchestra, and he's told me that trick. Yeah. So anyway. Uh, okay. Well, it's good to know. Um, I uh, the first time I went on stage, um, I was definitely like 
pacing around, you know, trying to memorize everything that I wanted to talk about. And I was adamant that I didn't want to bring notes on stage, even though I saw other people doing it. And and now I generally don't bring notes on stage, you know. And certainly if I'm doing a showcase or something, then, then I do the material that I know. But occasionally at an open mic or something, I'm working on new material and I still need to be reminded of what I'm going to talk about next. As a result of not bringing notes on stage, the first time I went on, I did three minutes instead of five because I couldn't remember what the fuck I had planned to talk about. And... Uh, when I was introduced, I thought this might be the only time I did it, and mostly my friends were there, and my friends all call me J-Dog. It's like a nickname that I was given because it's so obviously not me that it stuck. And so I wrote Jason J-Dog shoulder, you know, and then the guy who was the host, who actually lives in L.A. now, and we've sort of become friendly at least, um, he, he said, all right, next up, and he's like, I can't even believe I'm saying this, you know, as a 30-year-old man, like, I can't believe I'm saying it. Jason, J-Dog, shoulder, you know, and like, and at first he's like, it's the next guy, it's his first time, so be real nice to him, and then he dissed me about my nickname, you know, and so I, I got up, and my first words, I was like, that was a really cold intro. intro, you know, thank you for that, and then I turned to the crowd, and, you know, just started my set. So my very first moment on stage was antagonistic towards the host, which didn't, did not, uh, what's the word? Um, I did not win any love from the local Asheville comedy community by going head to head with probably the most popular comic in town in my first five seconds on stage. Uh, but anyway, I don't care, you know. Um, he and I are cool now and it's fine, you know. And. Uh, I started by saying something that I had thought of while I was waiting, and it went over like a lead balloon. I was like, okay, never do that again. You know, don't. I, I had been working 25 hours getting ready for this thing, 25 hours of writing, and then I started my set with something I thought of five seconds ago. And it didn't, it wasn't funny, and I was like, oh shit. And that's, that's when I went, you know, all the color left my face and I got scared. And then I went into the first joke that I remembered, which I still tell a version of. And then I went into the story that I had planned to close with <laughs> and, and did, in fact, close with. And then you had nothing to close <laughs> and with. And that was it. I closed early. And, uh, but, I mean, it was a long story. It was several minutes long. But I ended up getting off the stage in probably three minutes instead of five. Hmm. Well, Sarah Silverman had a special on Netflix recently. Yeah, and she had her notes. And she had her notes. Yeah. I was going to say. Uh, so If she can do it, she's Sarah Silverman. She's great. Yeah. She also didn't look at them once until the very end for yeah. her last joke. Yeah. Uh, but I thought it was very interesting that she had those notes with her. And, and I even talked about that with a woman who produces comedy shows in Denver who's actually going to bring my talk about funny show to Denver for me. She said, if I ever see somebody with notes, I don't put them on a show again. I said, well, Sarah Silverman just used notes in her special. Would you not put her? Yeah, and you, and you were saying you saw Louis C.K. And as he was working out his stuff going on tour and stuff, that he, he also had notes. Yeah, well, it was hard to tell what he had because he was like, he'd look at his phone and he'd look at a drink and, and he would just take a break. And he, would, he, would, he brought out two drinks and an iPhone. And I don't know that he had notes there or not because I couldn't see. But he would take time and like pick up the drink and then put it down without ever drinking from it. I don't think I saw him drink from the drink the entire time. Uh, maybe he was reading the label. Um, yeah, maybe he'd written it on top of the cup. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Maybe he did do that. That would be a great trick. Or like the guy who writes the notes on the insides of his eyelids and he comes on stage and he 
uh, closes his eyes and turns on the flashlight so you know he he can remember what to say <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a clever idea to write it on the top of the lid I don't, maybe that is what he did that's pretty funny uh, that had not occurred to me huh. um but yeah no watching louis ck work out his material was fantastic and, and also seeing the special and realizing that much of it was pretty much the way he did it when i saw him like it hadn't changed all that much he really he he tightened up a couple things but not not significantly not as significantly as i would have thought and i just saw chris rock recently and you and i had had a conversation about chris rock uh -huh. and and i had listened to a podcast and it was an old podcast with him but he said that when he does a special by the time he does it, he's done that set in a theater. A hundred times. A hundred times. And in invisible venues, 200 times. So by the time he gets on stage, he's done it 300 times. Yep. And it has evolved. It's not exactly the same as it was on day one. But he's basically been working that set you know, for a couple of years, three years, before he, he records a special. And that's how come he has it down so cold. Yeah. And it, it's... You can really feel it, and then you have time to act it out, and, and not just time, but you, you, you have the bandwidth to act it out because you're not fumbling for the words. You know the story you're telling at that point. So now I have a set that's pretty much dialed in that well. And I don't know if you watched the most recent thing I did at the Comedy Zone. I brought it out a few months ago on Facebook. Don't know if I did. I've um, seen a couple that you've done on Facebook. Yeah. Well, that would, that would probably be one of them where I'm, I'm in a suit and there's a blue background and uh if you haven't watched it watch it it's good okay um if you do say so yourself no i could, i'm not always good you're like i have plenty of times that i you're, bomb you're proud of it though that yeah that night i you know i crushed that room i mean it, and granted it was a very warm room did you get laid no i did not, <laughs> I, did not. I guess i did not. i guess it wasn't as good as i thought <laughs> Uh, it was the it was the graduation show for my comedy class that I had taken at the Comedy Zone. Huh. So uh, I didn't have any friends there, but everybody in the room was there to see somebody who had taken the class. And there were like two or three hundred people there. It was great. And they told us like, this is the best room you're ever gonna have. What's it's getting on, it's it's getting close to five o'clock. Okay. What what time have you got? Four fifty eight. Four fifty five. Yeah. These guys really know. Oh huh? man, they they got it wired. Okay. They're good boys. They're good. Well, okay. we can wrap it up, man. Um, I just appreciate you taking the time, and I appreciate you you going inward a little bit in ways that you had initially said that you wouldn't want to do. Well, I hope all those pregnant pauses can be edited out, and you can actually make me so sound. Uh, you know, relatively smart. Uh, My producer will make, you, make sure you sound smart. Yeah, and you don't, and you don't have to, uh, you know, give me uh, the right of uh, censorship or anything. Just do what'll work for you, and you know, I, I know that you won't fuck me up too bad. <laughs> no way, man. <laughs> and it's great seeing you too, and I love you, and uh, like I said, I'm real proud of you. I know that sounds a little paternalistic, and I don't mind. And I and I also aspire to not seeing you as uh, a former student, but rather the, just as an equal and a friend. That's that's the best. You aspire to that, meaning you hope it happens one day. Yes, I do. <laughs> I'm glad you caught that. Okay, that's it. I can't believe it's over. There are so many things I forgot to talk to him about. That's okay. Life is long. I'll sit down with him again and fill in the void. If you want to see some of David's work, check out his website, davidfermanart.com. 
There's even a way to buy his book there if you look hard enough. You can also get a copy of it on our website. If you like what you heard, you can visit our website and use our Amazon portal. You should definitely rate and review us on iTunes and make sure you tell your friends about learning to fail. If you feel so inclined, please consider making a donation on our donation page. Maybe we can even get a Fulbright for a family.